You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to another Greatest Hits episode of Your Brain on Facts, brought to you by our members at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, including our latest brainiacs, Whale Biscuit, William, and Sindra. It's also brought to you by my day job, which you can probably hear in the background as I'm recording this intro in the break room, which has no ceiling on it. This episode was on one of my favorite topics, books. And I'm not saying there's something cool at the URL, yourbrainonfacts.com book, but there's something cool at the URL, yourbrainonfacts.com book. So enjoy an encore performance of our episode, Read a Rainbow. What do the missing words in the following book titles all have in common? The Blank Mile Where the Blank Fern Grows The Blank Letter Need a clue? Here's a gimme. Fifty Shades of Blank That's right. All of these books have colors in their names, like a butterfly in the sky. Let's take a look at these books and read a rainbow. My name's Moxie. And this is your Brain on Facts. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Let's kick off the show with the most widely circulated colorful book, The Yellow Pages. You don't hear, I'm in the book anymore, and our fingers don't do the walking as much as they do the swiping these days. Considering that there have probably been more phone books printed than any other publication in the history of the world, this represents a large cultural shift in a relatively short amount of time. The first phone directory was created in 1878 on a single piece of cardboard with 50 listings, and it didn't have any numbers. It only listed the names of the businesses that had a telephone, since human operators connected all the calls, and the average person still needed to be taught to use their newfangled telephone. A directory of 248 listings was created in Britain in 1880. It said that in 1883, a printer in Cheyenne, Wyoming, ran out of white paper while printing telephone directories and used the yellow paper he had on hand instead. For whatever reason, the practice stuck. Early phone books included directions on how to use the phone, since people were prone to talk or yell into the wrong part. The telephone also taught us to greet people with hello. The word hello existed in English for hundreds of years, but it was used in an exclamatory sense like, Hello, what have we here? Originally, Alexander Graham Bell wanted people to say, Ahoy. That's probably why the non-specifically ancient Mr. Burns on The Simpsons answers his telephone with, Ahoy hoy. For an item that was once absolutely ubiquitous, it's surprisingly hard to find early examples. There was no compelling reason for people to hold on to one from year to year and phone companies used to pick up last year's when they brought the new one. P. 
People may wish that their grandparents had held on to theirs, though. One of the earliest phone books sold at Christie's Auction House for $170,000. Interestingly, whereas big companies usually patent, trademark, and copyright every little thing they create, AT&T didn't apply for intellectual property protection for the phrase Yellow Pages or the original Walking Fingers logo, which was created by a New England artist in 1962. This means that other publishers can use those freely. In many countries, including Canada, the UK, and Australia, Yellow Pages, or the local translation thereof, is a registered trademark, though the owner varies from country to country, usually the main national telephone company. Speaking of intellectual property rights, in 1991, the Supreme Court declared that directory listings cannot be copyrighted because the mere accumulation of information requires no creative expression. Apart from the obvious color and the fact that one is business and the other is people, an important distinction between the Yellow Pages and the White Pages is that the Telecommunications Act of 1996 allows for anyone who wants to to publish Yellow Pages but only the phone company can print white pages. So in some areas, you could get half a dozen different yellow pages every year. The yellow pages is still a multi-billion dollar a year industry, which is why people are still interested in printing them. Over 500 million directories are printed in the United States each year, 1.5 per person, assuming just over 300 million people living in the country. The average Yellow Pages book weighs about three and a half pounds. Multiply all that together, and you get about two billion pounds of paper. It takes 24 fully developed trees to make one ton of paper. So you're looking at 23 million trees each year being cut down just to make Yellow Pages. Many publishers have recycling programs, but almost none have an effective opt-out, or better yet, opt-in program. Though the physical books are falling out of use, the Yellow Pages are still profitable thanks to a shift to online advertising, so they're not going away anytime soon. Personally, the only people I know who use a phone book and don't also have an AARP card are Sideshow Strongmen. Phone books are surprisingly easy to tear in half if you fan the pages out a little bit first. The Pokey Little Puppy, The Ugly Duckling, Scruffy the Tugboat. Don't have colors in their names, but they're all golden. These beloved titles were part of a line called Little Golden Books, created in 1942 through a partnership between Simon & Schuster, the Artists and Writers Guild, and Western Printing and Lithographics Company. In the early 1940s, children's books cost the equivalent of $30, a price far too steep for many people. But George Duplay, who led the Artist and Writers Guild at the time, wanted to make reading more accessible. He set out to develop lavishly illustrated, sturdy children's books that would be affordable to most families with young children. The group decided to publish 12 titles for simultaneous release in what was to be called the Little Golden Book series. Each book would have 42 pages. 28 printed in two colors, and 14 printed in four colors. The group originally discussed a 50-cent price point for the books, but they didn't want to compete with other 50-cent books that were already on the market. 
The group calculated that if the print run for each title was 50,000 copies instead of the 25,000 copies they originally imagined, the books could affordably be sold for 25 cents each, roughly equivalent to the price they are now. The first little golden books published were The Three Little Kittens, The Little Red Hen, and The Alphabet from A to Z. Early Little Golden Books editors spent time working with educators and psychologists to determine what children cared about and which storylines would appeal to them. The books reflected a shift in thinking about how, where, and what children should read, according to the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, which hosted an exhibit about the Little Golden Books in 2013. When the Little Golden Books were launched, they changed publishing history, according to Penguin Random House, which publishes the books now. For the first time, children's books were high quality and low price. They were available to almost all children, not just a privileged few. The books were designed to be sold in places where children and families already shopped, such as department stores and drugstores. A small town may not have its own bookstore, but it would have a five and dime. Consumer recognition was also an objective of the book's easily identifiable design. With very few exceptions, there were no author or illustrator credits on the covers, so the image drew one's full attention. Children's literature historian Leonard Marcus reports in his book Golden Legacy. And there was, of course, the distinctive gold binding, and a trim size designed to feel comfortable in a child's hand. Little Golden Books was an early example of branding in children's books, and it was done very well. Five months after they launched, the publisher had printed 1.5 million copies. The books were so successful, Simon & Schuster spun it off into a new division called Sandpiper Press, which George Duplay was in charge of. Of the dozen titles that debuted in 1942, only Jeanette Sebring Lowry's The Pokey Little Puppy was an original story. The rest were classic tales and nursery rhymes, easily recognizable for parents. The Pokey Little Puppy is an all-time classic, selling more than 15 million copies worldwide in dozens of languages. It's not only the best-selling Little Golden book, it's the best-selling children's hardcover book of all time. My personal favorite Little Golden book was The Monster at the End of This Book, starring Grover from Sesame Street. If I ever break down and start doing a video aspect to the podcast, you'll notice a Super Grover plush supervising my desk. Over 1,400 titles have been published, including tie-ins with pop culture like Star Wars and Barbie, and even Bible stories. The price of the little golden books has risen with inflation. 29 cents in 1962, 59 cents in 1977, 99 cents in 1986, and so on. They currently sell for $3 to $5, depending on where you shop. That's the price new, of course. There's also a lucrative market for first editions and other rare versions. A 1942 version of Mother Goose, with the original dust jacket, can be yours from a specialty bookseller for the low, low price of $1,375. What was your favorite little golden book? Share this episode on social media and let us know. You probably don't even have to go to a different app. Try swiping up on your listening screen. Most podcast listening apps have a share function, and it's a great way to help the show. One color in particular gets a trifecta of books on today's list. From a censorship manual 
to a life-saving travel guide, to a dictator's manifesto. These are a few of the green books, which we'll take in chronological order, beginning with a book that opens, There will be a day, sometime in the near future, when this guide will not have to be published. That is when we as a race will have equal opportunities and privileges in the United States. It will be a great day for us to suspend this publication, for then we can go wherever we please, and without embarrassment. This was The Negro Motorist Green Book, a travel guide first published in 1936. It provided listings of hotels, guest houses, service stations, drugstores, bars, barber shops, and restaurants that would serve and be safe for African-American travelers. The Green Book focused on segregationist strongholds like Alabama and Mississippi, but its coverage extended from California to Connecticut, any place where its reader might face prejudice or danger because of their race. With Jim Crow still looming over much of the country, a motto on the guide's cover also doubled as a warning. Carry your Green Book with you. You may need it. Rates of car ownership exploded after World War II, but the lure of interstate travel, the Great American Road Trip, was fraught with risk for African Americans. Whites-only policies meant that black travelers often couldn't find safe places to eat and sleep. Many black travelers packed all the food they thought they would need for fear of being unable to find a restaurant to serve them, as well as being prepared to sleep in their car every night. So-called sundown towns, places that banned blacks after dark, were scattered across the country. The Green Book was the brainchild of Harlem-based postal carrier Victor Hugo Green, who took inspiration from similar guides already available for Jewish travelers. Like most African Americans in the mid-20th century, Green had grown weary of the discrimination black people faced when they ventured outside of their own neighborhoods. The first edition only covered hotels and restaurants in the New York area, but Green soon expanded its scope, using fellow postal carriers as scouts and paying cash to readers who sent in useful information. By the early 1940s, the Green Book boasted thousands of listings across the country, all of them either black-owned or verified to be integrated. In cities with no black-friendly hotels, the book often listed the addresses of homeowners willing to rent rooms, a sort of early Airbnb. The Green Book was the Bible of every Negro highway traveler in the 50s and early 60s, wrote Earl Hutchinson Sr. in his memoir, A Colored Man's Journey Through 20th Century Segregated America. You literally didn't dare leave home without it. Thanks to a sponsorship deal with Standard Oil, the Green Book was available for purchase at Esso gas stations across the country. Though largely unknown to white travelers, it eventually sold 15,000 copies per year. Later editions included information on airline and cruise travel to places like Canada, Mexico, and Europe. In offering advice to its readers, the Green Book adopted a pleasant and encouraging tone. It usually avoided discussing racism in explicit terms, with one article simply noting, the Negro traveler's inconveniences are many. In one of its last editions in 1963, it included a special Your Rights, Briefly Speaking feature that listed state laws related to discrimination in travel accommodations. The Negro is only demanding of what everyone else wants, the article stresses, what is guaranteed all citizens by the Constitution of the United States. 
Victor Green didn't live to see his book become obsolete as he'd hoped, passing away in 1960. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act finally banned racial segregation in restaurants, theaters, hotels, parks, and other public places. Two years later, the Green Book quietly ceased publication. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Across the pond in 1949, the British Broadcasting Corporation's Variety Programs Policy Guide for Writers and Producers, commonly referred to as the Green Book for reasons I could not find, detailed what was then permissible as comedy material. But even as it tried to police comedians, which is never advisable, its bureaucratic tone and outlandish restrictions became comedy fodder in and of itself. The Green Book was created after an incident in 1944, when the great variety star Max Miller, master of the double entendre, told an unscripted joke about a mountain pass, a girl, and a blocked passage and found himself banned from the airways for five years. Among jokes banned were those concerning the lavatory, effeminacy in men, immorality of any kind, and vulgar use of words like basket. You may remember from episode 42 on British comedy that basket means the bulge in a man's trousers in the secret gay cant slang of polari. Jokes that required a regional accent to make an innocuous statement sound dirty were right out. For example, making winter draws on sound like with her drawers on was forbidden under prohibition against mentioning ladies' undergarments. You couldn't even say fig leaves in reference to the bathing suit area. Many of the guidelines comply with modern notions of political correctness. No offense was to be given to other races. Derogatory references to the working class solicitors, i.e. lawyers, and miners, those who dig for a living, were specifically out. Seemingly ahead of their time, the N-word was banned. But the phrase N-word minstrels was still allowed. Some of the rules were quite specific. If a comedian wished to impersonate a real person, that person's permission was required. If that person was dead, permission had to be sought from the person's relatives. You could only make a scant few jokes about drinking in any given program, and remarks such as one for the road are inadmissible on road safety grounds. The document also advised extreme care should be taken in dealing with references to or jokes about prenatal influences. The most specific of all was probably the banning of any reference to the McGillicuddy of the Reeks, 
the last in a line of noble Irish chieftains, or any jokes about his name, after he lodged a complaint. It has been said, though, that for as strict as the rules were, they weren't followed to the letter. If they had been, some of the most popular comedies, like Beyond Our Ken, Till Death Do Us Part, and Steptoe and Son, could never have been aired. It also intentionally helped sharpen the writer's skills at crafting innuendos, having set them a challenge to get their jokes on the air. Less amusing than even the worst British comedy, and I say this knowing full well that someone thought it would be a good idea to make a sitcom about Hitler and his Jewish neighbors called Heil Honey I'm Home, was the Green Book of Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi. First published in 1975, six years after Gaddafi seized power in the September 1st revolution, the book, actually entitled El Kitab al-Akhdar, was intended to be read by all people. This was not a suggestion. Some scholars have compared the Green Book's political and economic ideology to Rousseau, Mao, and Marx. There are precious few external sources cited, though, not even religious texts. Most analyses of the Green Book emphasize Gaddafi's many tangents and his penchant for stating the obvious, like his proclamation that woman is a female and man is a male, says New York Times reporter Mohamed Bazi. While not really representing a coherent worldview, the Green Book does have its own peculiar logic. A mixture of utopian socialism, Arab nationalism, and third world revolutionary ideology that was in vogue at the time it was written, in a tone and style similar to classic Arabic literature. On the subject of gender, Gaddafi said that a man is aggressive by nature and a woman, quote, is tender, a woman weeps easily and is easily frightened which makes his retinue of 40 virgin female bodyguards seem odd, as well as his decision to arm the women of Tripoli and send them on military training exercises when the Civil War escalated. The Green Book was actually two volumes. In the first, The Solution of the Problem of Democracy, Gaddafi promised to rescue the world from the failures of Western democracy and communism. His third universal theory would usher in an era of mass democracy in which people would rule themselves directly without elections, political parties, or parliamentary representation. That sounds nice until you remember many of the people protesting his government were shot. The second volume offered The Solutions of the Economic Problem, a jumble of quasi-socialist ideals and capitalist notions. In some parts, Gaddafi appeared to be a class-conscious guru type. There are no wage workers in the socialist society, only partners. Where in other sections he exalted property ownership. There is no freedom for a man who lives in another's house, whether or not he pays rent. Gaddafi also glorified Bedouin and traditional tribal cultures, believing, as the 14th century philosopher Ibn Khaldun wrote, that sedentary people are weak and inferior to nomadic people. Though Gaddafi spoke out against compulsory education, Libyan children spent two hours a week studying his book as part of their curriculum. Extracts were broadcast every day on television and radio. Slogans from the book were plastered on billboards and painted on buildings. The World Center for the Study and Research of the Green Book had a staff of more than 100 and branches around the world. Through the 80s and 90s, 
the center had a multi-million dollar annual budget to translate the book into more than 30 languages, host international conferences, and fund over 100 studies and scholarly papers on Gaddafi's theories. When Benghazi fell to rebel control at the beginning of the Libyan conflict, the center was one of the first buildings to be attacked. According to Al Jazeera, many copies of the book were burned during the conflict. Now, booksellers can't even give them away. Bonus fact, there are over 100 different acceptable spellings of Muammar Gaddafi, which I wish someone would explain to my spell check. Color-coded mandatory reading was also part of the Cultural Revolution in China. The Little Red Book, or to give it its full title, Quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong, carried 267 aphorisms from the Communist Chinese leader, covering subjects such as class struggle, correcting mistaken ideas, and the mass line, a key tenet of Mao Zedong thought. Included is Mao's famous remark, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. It was widely circulated in China and around the world during the infamous Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 76. Originally produced in 64 by the People's Liberation Army, it soon became a key feature of the chairman's cult of personality. The Ministry of Culture aimed to distribute a copy to every Chinese citizen, and hundreds of new printing houses were built in order to achieve this. By the time the Chinese Communist Party finally ordered a halt to the printing of the book in February of 1979, one billion official copies had been printed. Some estimates put the total as high as five billion copies worldwide, making it one of the most popular publications of the 20th century. The book was the brainchild of Lin Biao, a decorated general of the Chinese People's Liberation Army. He was Mao's right-hand man for about a year. People didn't last long in that job before dying or mysteriously disappearing. Hoping to further his own political ambitions, Biao asked the staff of the People's Liberation Army daily to compile a small collection of Mao's quotations. Once the book was approved, a free copy was issued to every soldier, most of whom, like their civilian counterparts, had little education and found it difficult to read Mao's long-form writings. The aphorisms were offered without context and strung together without regard for chronology. The editorial idea was, if it was Mao's thought, it must be coherent. It soon became a political bible and a source of spiritual inspiration. Every person in China had at least one copy, and reading and reciting from it became a daily ritual. During the 1960s, the book was the single most visible icon in mainland China, even more visible than the image of the chairman himself. In posters and pictures created by Communist Party propaganda artists, nearly every figure depicted, whether shown smiling or looking serious, was seen with a copy of the book in his or her hand. The book was used during the Cultural Revolution not only to streamline ideology, but as a weapon to be used against perceived class enemies and counter-revolutionaries. Owning and knowing the book became a way of surviving, says Daniel Lees, professor of modern Chinese history and politics at the University of Freiburg. Paramilitary Red Guards, usually students, mobilized by Mao to purify the Communist Party, would check whether those suspected of bourgeois tendencies were carrying the book and whether they could quote from it. The Red Guard would also use the book to accuse their own teachers, and eventually each other, of betraying Maoist values. 
millions of copies have been published in translation and sold abroad. It was taken up by Western groups like the Black Panthers, and was copied and passed around in Warsaw Pact nations, where the USSR's split from China ensured it would be banned. After the end of the Cultural Revolution in 1976, and the rise of Deng Xiaoping in 78, the importance of the book waned considerably, as did the value of Mao's quotes. Today in China, the book Quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong is mostly a piece of nostalgia, available for purchase at tourist destinations. Various editions are popular with collectors, and rare and unusual printings command high prices. There was even a spike in sales in the UK in 2015 after a member of parliament used it as a prop in a speech. For this segue, I wanted to reference web series come Netflix show Red vs. Blue, but I wasn't sure how many people would get it. Then I decided to do it anyway. Your armor is pink. It's not pink, it's lightish red. Guess what? They already have a color for lightish red. Know what it's called? Pink. The Financial Times is an international daily newspaper headquartered in London with a special emphasis on business and economic news printed on pink paper. The Financial Times was launched as the London Financial Guide in January 1888, describing itself as the friend of the honest financier, the bona fide investor, the respectable broker, the genuine director, and the legitimate speculator. Its only rival was the slightly older and more daring Financial News. In January 1893, the Financial Times began printing on light salmon pink paper to distinguish it from the Financial News. David Kiniston wrote in his book, The Financial Times, A Centenary History, that it's grown progressively pinker over the years. As far as one can tell, the Financial Times, for a long time, had a slight pinkish tint to its pages, rather than rejoicing in the bold salmon pink with which we are now familiar. But color experts politely disagree about what the actual color is. Latrice Eisman, executive director of the Pantone Color Institute, said the Financial Times is actually bisque. She said it was a wise choice because its shade is considered a tactile color, one that invites touch and is welcoming and nurturing. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I'll leave you with some purple prose, as it were. The 1964 booklet, Homosexuality and Citizenship in Florida, known as the Purple Pamphlet, which was indeed purple on its cover. It was published by a Florida Legislative Investigation Committee. Right after they fired nearly 40 professors and deans from Florida universities and revoked the licenses of over 70 public school teachers for being suspected homosexuals. This so-called cautionary guide, which was intended for every individual concerned with the moral climate of the state, came complete with photos of gay men in flagrante delecto, making it as ironically homoerotic as a thing can be. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.